I get really excited about the squad. It's it's disgusting. (laughs) No, as well you should be. I think more people should be excited about the squad for sure. Everybody should squat. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't weightlifted at all since Costa Rica and Brian was making fun of me. But I was so active because like Coco can attest, we walked miles and miles like every day. Mm -hmm. So we were very active. We that just lost great. all your muscle mass. No big deal. We'll get back to it. Gotta get the gotta get it going. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Health Unfiltered Podcast. I am very excited for our podcast today. I'm with my two co-hosts. Everyone is here and a special guest. How are y'all yeah. doing, Ro and Nicole? Great. I'm um, good. Thursday. You know, that's all I got to say at this point. Thursday. <laughs> Hey, we're making it. And now I want to introduce our special guest that I'm excited about. And um, I might be a little biased because he was one of my rock star clients. Um, But I want to welcome Dr. Dean Akins. Dean is a civilian doctor and clinical psychologist researcher who has worked in active duty combat stress, risk, and resilience for the past 20-ish years. He spends a lot of time trying to figure out why service members don't want to talk to a therapist and how to do a better job of that. I think that's a very brave mission there. Um, Dean also works as an intake and admitting doc for the VA Detroit Substance Use and Suicide Prevention Programs and consults in violence risk evaluations, trying to gauge an employee's risk of self-harm or harm to others. In his free time, he does endurance events for charity involving children, veterans, or both. And when we were working together, he even took first place in his first tactical game skirmish when we were working together. So that's super freaking rad. And he just got some awesome PRs. So I'm really excited. Yeah, man. Hey, leave some for the rest of us, you know? Hey, I, <laughs> I'm very good at my job. I do this and then I do this for charity. I'm like, okay, I'm a shit human being. <laughs> There's plenty to go around. No, but... As I was reading it, I'm like, I hope he's sleeping. I hope I'm there's trying, sleep. Man. I am trying to sleep. Oh, man. Well, thank, thank you, you so much me. for. Yeah, I'm so excited for our conversation and getting to know you working together. I feel like we had really good conversations and I was so interested in your work. So I'm really excited we get to have a platform and a conversation to talk more about it. Cool. I'm I'm excited to talk about it too. Nice. How's everyone doing today? Is is anyone drinking? Do we need, we're having a virtual cheers. How's everyone feeling? Thursday at three o'clock. Of course I'm drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Rose got to get in that last few months of being a college guy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, dad, it's not alcohol. It's a little work. Yeah. I actually have, um, this is again, one of the, we got a new shipment from that uh, subscription service. And this is uh, a blood orange Hefeweizen from Ellicottville. I don't know where that is um but i do love blood orange and i like love like blonde beer so i'm sure this is going to be great cool yeah (laughs) rowan is blonde that's great yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) oh my god gonna get in trouble again (laughs) (laughs) um i just got done working out so i'm drinking a smoothie not booze trying to be responsible you just if you put some vodka on it, it's just a protein shake at that point. Yeah, I feel like we could do that when we were you younger, still, and now it's just like we can't do it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fair. <laughs> oh man, nice. I'm really boring and hydrating, so I I have liquid, <laughs> we IV, love it. liquid IV and the Nalgene kind of story. So that's, that's, <laughs> yes, what flavor? Approved. What flavor is the liquid IV? I think it's uh, the lemon lime. That's the one I can tolerate. Mm. Actually, never had any, but I haven't had the lemon lime. They make like apple pie, they have a margarita flavor, which someone said's really good. And I was like, I cannot do that. (laughs) So, that's what you got to do tequila and liquid IV with margarita. Like, (laughs) you stay hydrated. (laughs) You know what? We got to do that one time (laughs) for sure. Oh my god. That would definitely be like that needs to be when like Ro turns 30. Like, here's our hangover hack. Seven months now, or nine months now. <laughs> Shit, I'm getting old. Mm. 
I am drinking a Waterloo sparkling water peach. If anyone's into sparkling water, like DM me some other recs because I'm getting a little bored on the flavors. I need some ideas to stock my office fridge with better bubbly water. Have you done AHA yet? I've tried one of theirs that's in the blue and red can. I want to say it was like pomegranate berry yeah, or something. Good. That yeah, was good. Uh-huh. But bubbly? I'm really loving like the prebiotic sparkling pre-biotic. drinks too. I what think else? those are really good. They have a lot of good fiber in them. Those are mm. very interesting. Yeah, I think it's like the poppy brand. That one's my favorite right now. Mm. You can have okay. fiber in a drink. Fiber in a bubbly. Mm-hmm. Which sounds weird, but it actually tastes really good. Like I tried one, I can't remember the brand, but it was like vintage cola. It doesn't Mm -hmm. taste like a Coca-Cola, but it has a cola taste to it. And it has like good fiber, prebiotics, probiotics. I was like, hey, it's worth a shot. Uh, Does it have like any um, like pulp type stuff in it? Or is like fiber? I didn't know like fiber could be uh, dissolved. Yeah, dissolved. That's kind of weird. Yeah, probably, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. like a uh, sun fiber products, yeah, like that that's I'll recommend to clients. Yeah, those are like yeah, they'll totally dissolve like water. Yeah, yeah. I learned something new today. Put some fiber Boom. in my beer. Actually, this is fermented, <laughs> right? It's got fiber. In it. So, oh. It's all good. These are the hacks people want. They don't care about liquid IP. <laughs> the life hacks. They want how do I Dog. drink beer and still be hydrated? <laughs> good. That's great. Good. Nice. Well, we do have a question of the week. It looks like it's for our on staff exercise physiologist. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was brilliant. It just came. Who's cutting the checks? (laughs) For real. And by on staff, I mean he's paid for free, and we occasionally send him bath bombs and beer for his kindness. Very true. I have to use a bath bomb. I gotta. I gotta use one. So here's our question from a listener. I saw a video on Instagram that said if I wanted to get bigger muscles, I should try to train my type 2 muscle fibers. How do I do that instead of my type 1 muscle fibers? Do lower reps activate type 2 more? Yeah, so this is a uh, a really good question, um, which is why I wanted to make sure we got to it. So uh, I'm going to do my best to keep it, you know, five-ish minutes long. But the first thing to understand is like as humans, we generally have three muscle fiber types. We have our type one, type two A and type two X. Our type one are going to be like lower threshold, fatigue resistance and low power. So when you think about an endurance runner, a marathon runner, they might have more type one muscle fibers because they are resistant to fatigue. So they don't get as tired easily. Um, But, you know, runners generally don't have high power outputs because you know, they just have to like be able to sustain a lot of uh, work for a long period of time. And then when we go to our type 2X, those are going to be higher threshold. They have the lowest fatigue resistance, but they also have uh, really high power outputs. So this is going to be, you know, historically thought of as someone like a power lifter or an Olympic weightlifter. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, and then type 2A, we also, it's kind of like a mix between them. So moderately high threshold, but they are still high threshold, moderate fatigue resistance, and then moderate high power. Um, What's important, the reason I said we'll get back to it is type 2X fibers, even though they are like high threshold um, and used to be thought of as high power, uh, uh, people with obesity and people who do less training actually tend to have the highest amount of type 2X fibers. So it's not so much that they are high power, but they are mostly uh, low fatigue resistance. So this is why they tend to get tired more or like can't do things as actively or as prolonged as someone who trains more. So an athlete or someone who trains more, does a lot of things, is going to have more type 2A fibers. So it's going to be like, yeah, I can have high power outputs. I'm able to resist most or a little bit of fatigue. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's a nice little blend of type 1 and type 2X. Now, going back to the question, should I only train type two muscles to, you know, get bigger? Like um, if we look at a a bicep, it has all different types of fibers, type one, type two X, type two A. And so it would stand to reason that if I can get all of those muscle fibers bigger, 
then the muscle belly itself, the bicep, would also get bigger. So if you were like, you know what, I'm only going to train my type 2A muscle fibers, then that would mean that your type 1 muscle fibers don't get any bigger. So you're not going to be able to get the most growth out of any sort of muscle. So that's like one thing to think about. Now, when we think about how to train all muscles or how to at least make sure that we're getting those type 2 muscles, because they generally do tend to be bigger, and we just talked about how they have higher power outputs, uh, muscles work on the size principle. And so the size principle states that regardless of what we do, I'm going to activate the smallest muscle fibers first because they're lower threshold. I don't need to expend as much energy. And the more I do work or the heavier a weight gets, then I'm going to activate the next biggest muscle fiber, the next one until I get to my biggest ones. So generally that looks like a type one muscle fiber first, a type two A muscle fiber next, and then a type two X fiber at the very last like rep or the last second of that rep. So when we know that now, in order to get to that type 2A or the type 2s, I need to be training enough to stimulate those. So if you do higher reps, you're going to generally have a lower load because you can't lift, you know, Dean was just talking about how he hit 250 as a 1RM in January. He can't do that 20 times, right? So you have to lower the weight in order for you to be able to do higher reps. But if you never get towards fatigue and it's just like a super easy 20 reps, then you only are using or you're mostly using those type 1 muscle fibers. In order to utilize the type 2A and the type 2Xs, you have to get to fatigue or really close to it. So if you want to train this beautiful mosaic of muscle fibers, generally you want to leave maybe one or two reps in the tank and then maybe the last set of each exercise hit fatigue. So, you know, maybe this Instagram was like somewhere, you know, it's like kind of right, but not fully right. Uh, and it's one of those things where it's like, you're thinking about it too much. Get your reps in, be intentional, work hard, and you're going to activate all those muscle fibers. Um, so that's what I have to say to that. Nice. Yeah, I feel like people run with these little concepts that like would make sense. And then it's like, no, it's not that. We're, we're zooming in way too far. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah for sure. Yep. That, that's all of health and nutrition and fitness mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, got to zoom it out. Everyone wants the answer. I don't got it for you. <laughs> if you had the magic pill answer, you would be able to buy one of those houses in Santa Monica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, Casey. We'll have to rent if we if we do that job. But dang. Yeah, for, for I guess for the listeners, Ro is in the process of finishing PhD and looking at jobs and places to live. And he's got the reality check of Zillow happening. And it's oh, like, yeah. <laughs> good luck. No, no. No. But I was there just you like, go. you know, I have a potential job in santa monica of all places and i was just like beautiful what's what's That's a house great. worth here and it's like oh minimum six million dollars and i was like okay <laughs> uh i'm gonna live in compton then uh that's gonna be really cool so you could commute <laughs> from calabasas and i i'll have to do yeah, something pretty much i'll oh, live in sure. the ocean i told him he just needed to find a silicon valley sugar daddy but yeah, you know i'll do that I'll do that. I'll take one for the team. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So today on this podcast, we're going to dive into mental health and the military community. And we're also going to talk about clinical psychology research and hear about some of the cool projects that Dean is doing. And then we're also going to talk a bit about mental health advocacy and what we can do um, just as healthcare providers or regular people who want to help promote mental and emotional wellness. So we're going to dive into all the things today. Cool. Let's do it. But first I want us to like, I want to kick it to you, Dean, because I think you have an interesting story of like, and I want to know how you got here. Like, what is your story of like, how did you become a clinical clinical psychologist and where did you start and how did you end up doing what you do now? Oh boy. Cool. All right. Um, So, boy, how did I start? So I think I wanted to do, I, I, when I went, I did my undergraduate in, at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. And I was kind okay. of like, hey man, uh, school is great and all, but 
but I want to get out of a classroom. And so I started working oh, preach. in like uh, gang prevention and uh, child sex crime survivor stuff. And it was really intense. I learned a lot about people. I was really fascinated by like criminal psychology kind of stuff. Um, but the resources for all that is, is really not there. And they're like, hey, look, you're, you're either going to wind up the next generation probation officer or with you, probably next generation criminal. So, you know, what are you doing? And it turned out I was good at math. And, uh, and so I, got, I started doing volunteering and research in a Alzheimer's lab. And so I was doing this kind of very dual thing of working in kind of the computational and the, the neuroscience of Alzheimer's and trying to convince kids to, uh, you know, trust me or, or, you know, not run away again or, or, or file a, a, a complaint, you know, go, go to the law. And, and try to get some services and some safety. And, um, and ultimately, I kind of figured out that if I really wanted to have any kind of agency in these kind of jobs, I needed at least a PhD, and, and maybe an MD, but, but at least a PhD. And, and that was kind of a big aha moment for me as an undergraduate, because I, I wasn't so sure what, what the classroom was all about. Um, but I really liked doing research, and I really liked um, science. And so I left Northwestern to work at, at an Alzheimer's lab in Stanford. And uh, a lot of the patients, a, a kind of dementia is Korsakoff's, where you have drank so much alcohol, your stomach lining can no longer uh, uh, absorb B3, and it rots your brain. You can't remember. And, and there were a certain cohort of those that were veterans. And, and so I, I went to a graduate school at Penn State and got a really great broad training and clinically, um, all sorts of different kinds of therapy, uh, psychodynamic, cognitive, behavioral, all, all these things, and, and started researching emotion and, and memory. And um, I did internships in Seattle at UCLA, and, and then I got a, a faculty job at Yale, and I was gonna be a, a member of the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And I showed up August of 2001 um, with an objective of like, how does uh, PTSD accelerate Alzheimer's risk in Vietnam veterans? And by October 2001, I was doing interrogation stress um, in active duty. You know, the war happened and um, everything changed for me. And, and as a civilian scientist, and I think and absolutely it was a, a Yale thing, right? Yale was a, is a big deal. And and that's fine. Um, and so there were opportunities from the senior scientists there uh, who invited me to be a part of that. And, and I took that advantage and ran with it. Um, and from, I started in the interrogation stress program, a survival school. And we looked at hormones and heart rate variability of people who do really well in interrogation stress and how cool they can run physiologically and how that provides a platform for how they can then keep their wits about them in really lousy times. And from there, I, I started working in infantry at Fort Drum, 10th Mountain Light Infantry Division. And people were like, you know, oh, they'll tell you all about their traumas as we were doing research about trauma. And it's like, no, they don't want to talk about trauma. They want to talk about their families. And my wife is a child psychologist. I'm a child. We go together great. <laughs> and, you know, and she's like, well, she studied how kids adjusted to big transitions, like, hey, the transition of adolescence to young adulthood. And I'm like, well, you want to see a transition. What about deployment? And, and so then we, we started working together and studying how families handle uh, the transition of deployment. And the, the Marine Corps picked that up for about 10 years at Base Camp Pendleton. And... We've been doing a variety of projects ever since. And that, again, you know, I'm a weirdo because I, I talk more military than academic and more academic than military, you know, for the service members. But I think 20 years of war has really sensitized a command that if they really want to maintain their, their force, 
and keep their force readiness, they've got to be thinking mental health. And, and I think that is a shift to the point of like, maybe we can consult in a coaching perspective. Like maybe there's room um, instead of it being, oh, you're a problem, go over there and fix that problem to what kind of trainings and certs we can have that have embedded mental health into it. And that's the kind of stuff that we're working on and thinking about now. And, and that could be like, hey, couples therapy for Green Berets and their spouses or partners to, hey, you're here for, for CQB training and shooting, um, but stress is going to absolutely jack you up in doing this. Like, how do you stay cool kicking down doors and, and you know, putting warheads to foreheads and keeping that brain housing group, you know, ready to go? And, and having a clinician kind of lurking around, um, talking about their physiology and their performance, um, but also talking about their mental health. And, and so in a large circuitous way, that's, that's how I'm here. That's so cool. That's a weird story. Man. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. Write a book. I feel like even just hearing it. that you knew in undergrad, like yeah. I want to get out and do like things out in the world and not in the classroom. Like that's, that's cool that you knew that so soon. Yeah. It's, it's weird though, because my, I have a daughter who's 15 and a, and a son who's 19 and, and they don't quite know what they want to do. Right. And, and there's a lot of like, Hey, you should, you should know, you should know. And mm -hmm. I, I keep telling them, Hey, in my senior high school, uh, graduating newspaper, I said, I wanted to be an English teacher. <laughs> that that lasted three months I mean, so so you know i think for me it really was kind of trauma-based though um that people could would freeze in situations and i'm not mm -hmm. a freezer i'm a i'm a doer and mm -hmm. and i think that that trait um kept me going and and i want to do and so it's hard to sit sit and and absorb passively and i you know and that could be like hey man i'd like to help set up an experiment and run subjects and hey i want to learn about these computers and these brain waves that's cool so i think there's something applied but also meaningful when you are engaged and i see that with students with a caution of like hey are you really into this career because empiricism speaks to you and that this is it or is it cool because you found a a lab that has engaged you one-on-one -on -one, which is great but but go find your Go, go find your spark, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's how I went from all these different topics to um, putting it together with service members, that, that core value of wanting to serve. Mm. That's yeah. freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm finishing up my PhD and even now I'm like, yep. what do I really want to do? You know? <laughs> yeah. so like, oh yeah. But, <laughs> I but can't imagine a 15 year old being like, I know exactly what I want to right. do. Right. Yeah, don't, don't make mm -hmm. my 15 year old commit to anything yeah. <laughs> other than go explore. Mm -hmm. yeah. Go explore, yeah. man. Like we, we, we can, we can tolerate going exploring, you know, but, um, but that's the thing. Nice. So I want to hear about, some research. I know we had, you had mentioned some cool things you've done recently. So what cool projects have you been involved in recently with the military? Yeah. So we, we, unfortunately we, we froze in COVID and we were, my wife and I, she had led a team where we were following a hundred Marine Corps families through a deployment life cycle. You know, we, we met them at pre kind of talked to mom and child at mid and then reconnected with dad and family at post and a follow-up. And we did, it was more than just surveys because surveys are awesome. They, they have a great service, um, except when it comes to like emotions. Cause like filling out a survey about your emotions is kind of whack. Um, <laughs> it, it, like I feel great, checkbox. Um, but like, how do you do it? How do you actually experience frustration or how do we connect with one another? Like you can say things are great, but how do you actually do it? And so Julie had come up with all of these evidence-based play tasks. And so we would go into these homes and videotape, you know, mom playing with child, dad playing with child, everybody playing. And so we have 400 videos that need to be scored. And, and so we're finally getting COVID safe enough to where people can come into the, 
the locked lab and, and look at these videos and, and start scoring how they do, how the kids handle things. And, and that these scores of emotion regulation then relate to, you know, dad's deployment stress and really the linchpin, which is mom's in charge. You know, that spouse is the emotional keystone to the whole, to the whole thing. That's what you got to learn right away. And, and Julie, my wife, does all the math that looks at that as a structured equation model. And so that's trying to get done, um, which I think is really cool. And then right now, uh, we're trying to convince uh, JSOC that, you know, looking at physiology while you're training for CQB is a really helpful coaching tool, like in real time, like that Aliens movie where they had the Marines shooting the aliens and the dudes are back in the car and every, every Marine has a TV screen and you're looking at their heart rate and stuff. And, and so that's what we're doing now is that we're, we're teaching guys, you know, they, they get the training that's already going to be standard of CQB training, but they're, they're getting tracked in their physiology. And that is giving us the iceberg under the water, under the sea level of how they're doing. Right. So like you can see their performance. Hey, did you hit the target? Oh, you hit the, the civilian target. Bad move. But what you can't see is as they're waiting for the go button, how jacked is their heart rate? And why is it so jacked? And, and again, the heart rate, it goes up, it goes down. And as a clinician, you can kind of say like, well, I know some of the things that can do that. That text from your ex-wife who's now insisting that you come pick your kid up. And it's like... You look at this, you know, like, right, you're supposed to be, you know, on the door and we're ready to go. And you get that text and you're like, ah, oh, and their heart rate goes off and then they screw up or do something wrong. And it's really, really stressful. And so that's what we're starting to try to do is to see like, well, how open are they? Um, to talk about that from kind of a coaching perspective. So somebody who's embedded, maybe doing some of the CQB themselves, but who's there kind of to talk to them about their performance. We're talking about their shooting performance. Can we talk about breathing and relaxation? And can we talk about what's freaking them out? Like, hey man, you know, how was that last deployment? How did that thing go? What's your values? Are your values in conflict? Um, what about burnout? So it kind of opens the door because if they're talking like, yeah, man, look at your heart rate. What happened? You're like, oh man, I was, I was really worried about what was happening. Hey, tell me about that. So we're, we're trying to see if that'll be something like and and like if we randomly assigned one team to having that condition versus somebody who had training as usual um would folks be a better shooter because they're cooler and they're less jacked and anxious or revved up um and within the long term are they also more healthy you're you're retaining your force because they're not as burned out um they're not as uh emotionally upset and they're able to, you know, engage their family more, which are all kind of things that, you know, really, really matter for these people. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. And then and, and taking that into couples, you know, like, okay, we don't have to be on the shooting range to talk about that. But like, hey, um, you're mandated to have these like resilience workshops. And it's like, great. Hey, that's awesome. Super cool. What are you doing them? And I asked them, what are you doing that? And like, sir, I haven't paid attention very much in them in the past. So I, you know, I don't know. It's like, okay, that lets me know. And, and we're trying to figure out some just how to bridge, how to put it in dude talk. All of this stuff that was written by civilians, very well-meaning civilians with years of, of clinical expertise. And they're talking about feelings and, and emotional safety and, and, development and exploration and i'm like okay but these are this is for dudes who shoot dudes in the face right <laughs> and you're talking about core values for dudes who shoot dudes in the face right and, and how do they come home and relate to their spouse and child and and it's absolutely essential that they do both jobs they have to be able to bridge and and what i'm writing about and it's due tomorrow so i'll get back to it soon <laughs> <laughs> is, is how there, we have all core values and we have to prioritize those core values. And I think what these men have are invisible core values that you and I, we're in the greatest country in the world. We're sitting with technology and, and we're doing our thing. 
we don't realize we have these core values until they get confronted in a life and death way, like what we're seeing in the Ukraine. Like suddenly mm -hmm. the highest values you have, oh, you actually have a few others, <laughs> right. like, like safety and body integrity and, and who's in my safety net. Like these dudes have that all the time. And we have to kind of remind them how those work and, and work in, in less dangerous situations. So that's, that's the goal for the next couple of days is to kind of like, how do you bridge that gap? And how do they bridge that gap with their, with their partners who are hopefully maybe their best friends or at least their partners? Man. Yeah, the, the, uh, the closest thing that obviously what you do is awesome. And I'm sitting here like, oh, maybe I want to do that, right? Like <laughs> classic. <laughs> uh, but like the closest thing that I can relate to with that is uh, our fighters. So like when, whenever I test them, I'm always asking them their readiness score. Like what's your mood? What's your energy? How are things at home? And I have, we use uh, right. a whole survey just to see like how they are in that moment so that when we do test them, you know, maybe the next time they come test, nothing has changed, but they're in a better mood, their scores go up. And it's just right like a, a way for us to see like, okay, mentally you were a little messed up that day. It's not that you're any weaker. You just had a bad day for whatever reason. And then also, it, it, I love how you talked about how, you know, their, their core values are like, you know, it's dude shooting dudes. Like, I can't relate to anyone who goes into a ring to try and beat the shit out of someone else in the hopes of like yeah. providing for their family and stuff. I'm like, Hey, yeah. that's so great for you. But like, I could never, you know, like yeah. I'm not trained for that. I don't like to get hit in the face. I've been <laughs> hit in the face, you know? Uh, but so much of it is like, when you look at the, the best athletes in the world, uh, especially the best fighters, when they're, when the five minutes is up and they have a minute to relax, the best fighters are able to take themselves from a hundred back down yes. to 10 and it's yeah. just them breathing sitting down and then getting ready for the next round and the the fighters Absolutely. that are just like bleeding energy are the ones that are just like <laughs> you know just hyped up for the entire 15 minutes and Absolutely. so like you look at that and you're automatically like yes this is much different than defending like home country and land and stuff like that but it's like you are getting beat up in the face, right? So yeah. if you can do that and be more relaxed and you are going to be able to slow everything down, which is much better for you because you'll be able to see things, you'll be able to react better. And I think that like, that's what sports in general too is like now realizing that, oh yeah, yeah, like aside from fighters, but even like baseball players, basketball players, like if you are more relaxed in high pressure scenarios then you're going to do better. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I would love to read all the stuff that you put out because, you know, that's me too. Yeah. <laughs> me too. So I'll, 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 I'll ask you for your email tomorrow. But like, hey, let me see that paper you finished just now. Um, right. But yeah, that's that's awesome. It's also why we talk about how your your mental like needs to be in a proper place. A hundred percent. And in fact, I was I kind of got. Uh, contacted by one of these contract groups for the JSOC for, for uh, CQB training, the close quarter battle training. And they had the heart rate. They knew I did heart rate variability research. And honestly, they had a, a reconnaissance Marine who was this, he's this really gruff guy. He's really tough, <laughs> mm -hmm. but he's a living, walking psychologist. I mean, he's embodied the principles and he kind of talks about what he calls the agile mindset. And it's a performance-based cognitive therapy. I, it, it, and it just, that's what it is. And it's, it's really talking about compartmentalization, like yeah. focusing on your fight, um, focusing on your goals, uh, prioritizing work. Um, you can't worry, right? There's no room for worry um, if the priority of work is going to hit you in the face. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think what I'm adding to that is, is, uh, principles of emotion regulation, which is as just as you said, Ro, like if you are coming into this cooler, you have more wits about you. And, and it's, and, and even talking about your um, question of the, of the cast of, Hey, how, how do I develop my, my type two fibers over my type one? And it's like, no, 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 no. It's not just, it's not meathead. This isn't about <laughs> run fast, hit fast, it's about run purposefully, hit purposefully. It's strategy. And 
you know, I, I can tell you like, and this, <laughs> that's why I like this um, tactical competition stuff is that I, you know, I'm, I, I don't do it because I think it's, it makes me like a, a service member. I, 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 I'm not into that. Um, but I like the <laughs> idea that it's, it's moving functional movement where it's kind of like a tactical, um, uh, oh my heavens, I've lost the word. The, the biathlon, right? You know, you've got to really, really move and then suddenly really calm down and take a very hard shot. And that's exactly what all of these different sports involve. It could be weightlifting. It can be uh, a, a, a ring fight, anything. I need you to focus on this like a game and, and how to go from being jacked to being purposeful. And that can go from a tactical games uh, competition, a ring match. It could be, um, we're going to go through this house and we're going to find the bad guy. It could also be telling your wife that maybe you don't love her anymore. Right? I need you to have that conversation. <laughs> Bro. Bro. Purposefully. No, that's, yeah. Right? That's, mm -hmm. and, wow. and, it, yeah. and it's really hard and it's painful. And I think that's where the, my clientele they could do it really, really, really well um, at work, but then it blindsides them at home because it's not the same rules of engagement. It's 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 now on a different level. It's it's this kind of more you know we're going to talk about feelings and stuff and and you can't be uh, you can't say oh I'm I don't have feelings yeah you know, right. but they but if you aren't practicing mindfulness and if you're not practicing emotion regulation it's going to hit you out of the blue at the worst time when, when you're trying to figure out why this relationship's not working anymore or, Hey man, she brought home the wrong kind of hot dog and you put your <laughs> hand through the wall because it's the wrong brand of hot dog yeah. or mm -hmm. like, Hey man, why do you need to carry concealed to a three-year-old's birthday party? What's up mm -hmm. with that? And, and there's reasons there's values mm -hmm. and priorities, but you're not, you're not so aware of them. Right. And it's like, no, no, we need to be aware of them. We, we have to be purposeful and intentional. We do it at CQB. We do it on an ODA. We have to do it at home, too, if you will. Mm. Yeah. We will. What are the yeah, like, I feel like this kind of leads naturally into something I'm curious about is like, what are some of the things that you would see as far as mental health struggles with military community and tactical athletes. Like, you know, you'd mentioned some just then, but like yeah. having like a hard time with transitioning those rules of engagement to home versus with your military buddies. Like what are some things that you commonly see? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of booze and you know, <laughs> Hey, booze is cool. Um, feelings are cool and guns are cool, but you put those three things together and, or any combination thereof and, and stuff can get hard. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, in the, this is the most researched experience of war for past 20 years. And, and so people are very articulate about what PTSD is and what depression is. Um, I think we have to talk, and I think folks are reluctant to want to endorse that, um, and even more reluctant to go get help for it. And so, um, I think I see a lot of, uh, untreated stuff. I think alcohol masks it. Um, and I think burnout, burnout is really important. This industrial organizational concept of emotional exhaustion that leads us to question our personal, um, accomplishment, like how effective am I? And if I, if I can't feel accomplished and I'm really exhausted, that's going to lead to a very deep cynicism or disregard for the people I either take care of or the people I'm in relationships with, right? And, and now I'm kind of hostile or acrimonious to them. And that's burnout. That's bad news. Um, it can be angry. And we know anger is our worst. It's our best predictor of treatment dropout. Like people don't want to, people aren't going to engage with you when they're angry. And so if you're angry at your partner, at the job, that's bad. And if you're really angry at yourself, that's really bad. So I think anger, booze, burnout, um, you know, and people trying really hard to hold it together. Um, you know, so it's not, it's this, it's like, um, rifle PT. Hey, it started out easy. 
It's just the weight of a rifle hold it up, holding it out right in front of me. But if I don't do anything about it, eventually those, I guess those type one, type two fibers, they start really <laughs> shaking. And, and after a long, you're going to, you're going to start, you're going to start losing it. And so I think that's the biggest thing is that I, I don't find people um, at the beginning of a problem. It's like, Hey doc, you know, I've been married for a long time. This is my mini, mini numbered deployment. And now how do we, what do we do? It's like, right. It's not the beginning of the problem and, and yeah. how to jump into that. If that answers the question. Yeah. What, like, what do, what does it look like for someone that, okay, I'm in the military. I've realized like I need some assistance or someone else has pointed out that I like could use some assistance. Like what resources are available in your opinion? You know, is it enough or could it be better or how does someone get access to help? Yeah, man. I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. And you know, the, the opportunities, um, to a service member, of course, are behavioral health medic, uh, chaplaincy, um, family counseling. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reluctance to go do that. Maybe they can take their TRICARE and try to find a, a, a civilian provider who accepts TRICARE. TRICARE is a lot of paperwork. There probably aren't a lot of civilian providers. And as the world has just figured out over the past two years, um, it's hard to get therapists. It takes a long time. Maybe it takes a long time for them to get back to you. Uh, maybe you don't like the first two or three, and options are really poor as to you know what your health insurance covers and doesn't cover. Yeah. Um, there's there's providers now who just don't even bother. It's just two hundred dollars an hour, man. And it's like okay, well that's that's not going to work for everyone. Yeah. So I think it's really hard. And I think also um, with the military with moving. Um, mental health care providers are licensed by state. And mm. what is hard is I get very meaningful folks asking for help, but they're not here in the state of Michigan. And, and I can't, I can't see them via telehealth because I'm not, I can't, the license don't work that way, of course. Um, so, you know, I can say you can look on military one source online. Um, you can go, you know, through your, uh, the base um, but there, there aren't great options. It, it's really hard. Yeah. I feel like that's gotta be a little defeating in a way. Cause you're like, I, yeah. there's a need and we just don't have like yeah. the resources. Yeah. And, and the killer is that after 20 years of war, um, Hey, I'm, I, I'm all down for what we call evidence-based therapies. They're manualized. And, and the idea is that if what I read and what I do in, in session three is exactly what N Nicole would do in session three. Um, hey, these things are not working so hot with military communities. Mm -hmm. um, we now have the data. The, the treatments are less effective in military samples. Why? It, we don't have the answer yet, but it might be that civilian single trauma exposures from perhaps more of a victim perspective, like it happens to me, I'm, I'm reacting from, versus a military situation where it's it's more workplace. It's it's um, multiple stress exposures. I get shot at every day, um, and it's something that I'm purposefully. It's part of my job in a lot of ways. Um, that that the treatments aren't working. So I can even if I said like, hey man, you should go to your therapist. You should you should go to behavioral health medic. You won't get dinged. Um, you're, you're not going to be uh, re reduced in rank or you know, not promoted. What's available? It, it's, it's better than nothing, but it's not doing... We, there's a lot of room for improvement. Do you think that there other people are seeing that need and the value of supporting in that way and that there's, there will be change in the future? Or what's your opinion? Well, I think it's a great question. And I think right now in there's a kind of this move away from cookie cutter of like, Hey, everybody could be treated by the same manual. And I think that might, my opinion is that it might parallel movements in society that say, Hey, don't judge me by my cover. If you will, I have an yeah. individual story, which for psychotherapy is kind of going back to our roots, which was, I don't know who you are and I'm trying to build that bridge. Right. As opposed to, hey, man, session three, you're supposed to stop being so jumpy and you're supposed to tell me your negative thoughts. And see, page five, it says that. 
So I wonder how much we're going to do that. I mean, we're, we're, I, I sit on some review committees. There's obviously always some pharmaceutical developments, always in development. Um, but we, we don't have a, a big wow insight into psychotherapy of like, oh, this, this is the new revolution. And there's ideas, but I, nothing's coming out as a, as a forerunner yet. Yeah. I would imagine like even in the field of nutrition from research and idea of discovery to when it becomes mainstream, I would imagine that's even further to when you see gut mass government military adoption. Like in my mind, I'd be like, it'd probably be a harder process. I don't know why I feel that way. Well, definitely like clinical trials in the military, you, you can't use a placebo. Um, there must be an yeah, intent to treat in every condition. So right away, that means, and as it should, there's less risk to the service member in research trials. And as it sh well should be, I'm responsible for these people being functional. I, I cannot play games with placebos that require you to be washed and not receiving standard of care. Yeah. But yeah. What, what could happen, what could happen is this idea that combat stress is separable from the stresses of, that are usually experienced in civilians. And that would be a huge break. Um, when PTSD was originally created in 1983, right, the Vietnam War had been over for a decade. And it was a coalition of um, rape trauma survivors and the Vietnam Veteran Disorder Group. They were going to call it the Vietnam Veteran Readjustment Disorder. And neither group had enough juice to make their disorder. And it was a, an agglomeration. And if you even look diagnostically, it's like 20 symptoms where you can have a menu of like, okay, two of these, one of those, four, you know, three of these. So it's very realistic yeah. to have five patients, all diagnostic, who have not a lot of overlap. How, what target as a doctor, what target do I aim for to treat if, if there's that much variance? Yeah. That's not an endophenotype. Right, that that's not one thing. That's it's very very broad, and and so we it, it's hard. It's really tough to try to figure out like okay, well, let's narrow that down. What what happens to service members? What happens to a motor vehicle accident survivor or even sex crime survivor? What what's going on? And and we're not there yet. Yeah. Do you think that part of the problem is because these aren't like objective measures? so much of it is that it's like subjective because like you know we could be responding to the this the same treatment in the same way but because my uh, symptoms or traumas i don't want to say i know what yeah. i'm talking about are like different that i'm going to react this separate way and so like it's working but because it's working for me and i'm a civilian i'm a, just mm -hmm. a student like it allows me to do this and it's working for a service member, but like it just in a different way and how they perceive it. Like, am I making sense? I think I got lost in my own train of thought. Um, yeah, you got lost in your own train of thought. <laughs> yeah, well, like I think like, my interpretation like you was... Went, like, like it's the same treatment, but different traumas. Is that what you're saying? Like a different that, like lived experience. Yeah, because that's what he's saying, right? Is that like mm -hmm. we can get a different menu, but it's like we we all have PTSD, even though we, you know, had different things happen to us. Mm -hmm. But it's like, how I guess how do you quantify if someone's getting better? Like, are the measures of success different? Yeah. Oh, sure. Because they have to be subjective, right? It's it, right, right. We we psychologists love numbers, and so there are there. Are, validated self-report measures of PTSD, and there's a gold standard diagnostic interview. And so absolutely, okay. um, clinical trials use these, and there's, you know, how many standard deviations of change occur over the, the therapy. Um, but at the moment, it's the same treatment uh, when we talk about evidence-based therapies like prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, maybe even EMDR, it's the same therapy, whether or not you survived a motor vehicle accident, um, you were assaulted once, you grew up in an abusive house, or you spent, you know, 
months in Sangin Valley and, and saw a lot of horrible death. So it's, it's meant to be the same treatment. Should it be? Could it be as effective? And, and the answer is, yeah, it's not working out so much with the military samples. Gotcha. Why? You know, like, hey, there's a, there's a lot of great questions because what we don't have, right, and there's no way to do this, is that there's no yardstick to pain. Like what's right. traumatizing for me, my, my 10 out of 10 is not Nicole's. There's no, and, you know, and there's no way to say, well, my, my gunshot wound is worth two cat calls and, and three <laughs> right. um, losses of, of miscarriage. There's, there's no way to turn those into numbers. And this is a numbers field, right? And so yeah. how do we measure that? And you can't, there's no way. But, and yet that's at the heart of this, right? It's, right. it's very much. Um, and so that's a challenge. And then we also don't have great um, endophenotypes. Like, give me a, uh, an observable reaction that all patients have. And they, we, don't, we don't have it. We don't have a biology. Maybe, maybe people with PTSD get really, really physiologically distressed as they think about their trauma. That might be close to an endophenotype, sort of. But other anxiety disorders have a similar thing. If, if you think about your last panic attack, you're going to cardio accelerate. Right. So it's hard because I don't have, like, point to the PTSD part of the brain and the brain scan. Right. And it, 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 <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work that way. As opposed to, hey, man, um, this blood test shows yeah. HDLs. Yeah. Um, we might be able to get there because maybe some markers of, of inflammatory markers are going to light up. Um, it would be really cool if we could get some blood markers for this, um, but not tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And I know yeah. you mentioned um, the research you and your wife are doing. That seems really amazing. Do any resources exist, you know, for people transitioning, you know, in and out of deployment or having resources for families or spouses while they're deployed? Like, what does that look like in the military community? Yeah, you know, there's, there, it, it kind of varies by branch because each branch is, is such structured so differently and, and the size of each branch. But there, there was meant to be a family readiness officer or, you know, maybe it was a spouse uh, who, who had kind of resources available for families on base, things for the, the spouse to do, resources. And so um, that's kind of been a, a, a tough call based on, you know, uh, availability. Um, but there was always meant to be some sort of something for the spouse. But what my wife found out, she talked to about a, almost a thousand military spouses. And it started really after like OEF two or two or three. Nobody had ever asked these spouses. Nobody had ever put a spotlight on them and asked them what it was like for them or what, you know, what's it like for you? And I think that's probably the, the biggest phenomenon is that they're, they're kind of very quietly um, suffering in silence and, and kind of maintaining um, during these very stressful deployments. Um, so they do have TRICARE, right? They have their family TRICARE, but finding providers, again, is, is rough because um, they're not supposed to go necessarily in all instances to the same providers that the service members would have access to, but find someone in town who takes TRICARE, and, and that's really, really hard. And so we found a, a, a higher rate of untreated, un, you know, diagnosed depression in these, in these spouses. Um, it's really hard, really hard. And it's yeah. worse if they're National Guard or in a state that um, doesn't have like a centralized, like a base, a community. Because if, if uh, you're in a state where you're just one family in the school district, um, the feelings of being alone are, are really intense. I just nobody understands. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like community support would be really important. Right on, right on. Like if the water heater blows up at 3 a.m. on base, there's people who could come and help. Um, when it's just you know, we're a guard family and it's drill week or your, your spouse has been sent somewhere, you know, what resources are there? And 
you know, how much community involvement is there in your, your kid's school? Or you don't have kids. Who do you, who do you engage with? Especially if you've just moved again. And that can be tough. That can be tough. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think the government needs to give you more funding to work with and you can just create all these amazing (laughs) programs. (laughs) Well, I mean, the biggest program is, is how to be, you know, self, you know, reliant. Um, You know, you gotta, you gotta be working it. Uh, If you're a young 22 year old, um, what kind of, how do you play the social game? Right. How do you get to network with the other wives? Um, is it yeah. gossipy? Is it is it backbiting? Or are you magnanimous? Or are you you know you're just trying to get your needs met? Um, and it it really requires a lot of mindfulness and emotion regulation on the part of the spouse. And that's just getting along with everybody else. That's not even like, hey, let's not send the angry text to your husband who's deployed at three a.m. You know, <laughs> that that's not healthy for anyone. Yeah. So it's 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 asking a lot of of these wines for sure said so, no i did have to google what magnanimous was <laughs> and it's generous or forgiving for anyone who yeah, also didn't know so <laughs> sometimes one. i let that's my pony head show <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah nice. well it's hard because it, it, i work with people where i'm like hey man feelings matter so how do you feel and they're like i feel good like, oh, yeah. <laughs> how do you feel uh, i feel fine <laughs> yeah how about you i feel tired like or I, f- I feel okay. I'm like, good, fine, and okay. Well, that's, that's, those are all right for a burger and maybe, <laughs> maybe a beer and, <laughs> and maybe, maybe how you shoot. But like what we're going to talk about today, I, I need you to broaden your emotional vocabulary. It can't all be bad. It all can't be fine or angry. Um, we need to experience some depth and some range. And that's how we're going to communicate our values and our priorities. So I have one final question for you, and I'd love for the gang to also share their thoughts. But we very much like to advocate for mental and emotional health as a well-balanced to, you know, we're obviously nutrition and exercise experts, um, but we realize that importance. I feel like I probably refer every single client to therapy if they're not in it already, just because I think I'm team everyone needs therapy. It's very helpful. Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on what we can do as healthcare providers or if someone's listening and just wanting to advocate to make, to help this kind of stigma go away. And like, what can we do to make a more supportive environment where we are working on things like emotional regulation, healing, reactivity, like anyone can really benefit from these things. Yeah. You know, the, the craziest thing is I, I did a stigma study for the army um, because there's, there's been plenty of reports that service members report symptoms. They re, they endorse stigmas and one out of three service members who probably should go see somebody go. So it's a very low rate, right? But um, after working on these stigma projects, the stigma doesn't predict going in to get treated. Mm. Um, things like being too self-reliant predict it. And um, thinking that therapy's dumb. Like you, you just don't think it's gonna work. That predicts it. Um, thinking that PTSD people are kind of at fault for their problems also has something to do with it. So I'm not, I don't know. I think stigma is a, is a social anxiety. It's a, what if somebody found out? And I think the challenge is who cares about them? Like who cares about someone? What if someone found out? Well, who's someone, man? What are they <laughs> doing? Um, tell me about, you know, if you really told not 10 of people that, Hey, I, I'm having trouble sleeping and I, I, I can't lift the weights that I want to lift or I, I, you know, I can't bike the way I want to bike. I can't live the way I want to live because I just feel so depressed. Really? You think 10 people will be like, and that's the way it should be. You deserved it. And I, <laughs> right. and I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, like, would you really judge 10 friends that came to you and told them that? And hopefully most people would say, no, I would never tell that to a friend. You know, I'm like, well, why do you tell it to yourself? Why is there that double standard? Um, and because who cares what they think? I mean, who cares about how you squat? It's up to you. Um, you know, can I value one job more than another? No, nobody does that. So I, I'm not sure that stigma, I should matter about stigma. I think I should just go do it. 
And, and so I think um, it's really important to point out the arrows for our clients of like, yeah, man, you know, you're, we're working on nutrition, we're working on health, we're working on maybe a goal. And it's funny how this keeps coming up, right? What, what's, what's in the way of the goal? That lack of sleep. Why aren't we sleeping? Worry. Hmm. Worry. Or booze. Hey, man, you, you like, how many times do we have a good time? All the time. Well, if you, and in, our, in our expertise, that's why you're not losing weight. Or that's why you're not running faster right. or, or whatever, or why, you, why your stomach is upset. You know, you're not digesting right because there's so much alcohol. So I think step one is really trying to keep pointing out that, that the emotional is hand in hand with all of these performances. And as, as Rose said, and I know, Brooke, you do it, you're like, I'm, as I ask about how you're doing with your nutrition, your training, your, your program, asking measures of stress. Uh, mm -hmm. is, is completely legitimate. Um, tragically, I, I, I come from a model of like, if you tell me that you're, you're thinking about therapy, I want to break out the biggest fireworks to support <laughs> that because it's usually too late to, to, I mean, because it's going to take a long time to find somebody. And like, if we're close to fall, seasonal stress, the winter blahs, like, so I really want people to realize, like, you can't pick up the phone and tomorrow it's hard to see somebody tomorrow. Um, and so you got to prepare for like, OK, a general practitioner, you could get an antidepressant, you could do these things. I'm a huge critic of anti-anxiety meds. I, I think those are really not going to help you, but an antidepressant will, but it's going to take six to eight weeks. If, how are we doing? If can we do we have six to eight weeks? And that's if you right. take them right today, right now. And you know, getting getting comfortable with the therapist is an art more than a science. It's going to take some time. How mm -hmm. you doing with that? I hope that sort of kind of answers the question. Yeah, I think that's great. And I feel like it gives us like good insights too on how to approach like conversation with clients. So I love that. Mm -hmm. I All about drawing those connections. Sorry, Brooke. Another question, if you have time. I don't know if it was like a quick question, but. Sure. <laughs> he says, I got all night. So wow. I was talking to, no, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I have a friend who uh, is in the Marines and he. Uh, this was a couple of weeks back. Um, he like posted something about how they're changing something, you know, he's all for it, whatever. And uh, I guess he was, he was complaining about how um, like older people in the service were like, oh, this is like, it's woke. It's like pussification of our armed forces. It's all this stuff. And and so I, I asked him, I was like, well, why is this like considered woke? Because in my mind, it all made like sense from a performance standpoint, from like every sort of standpoint. And, you know, he was like, yeah, it, it's not, you know, it's, it's just that some of the people that are in power or whatever, and they're like old heads and they think things should be like a certain way, uh, and I'm sure you deal with a lot of that. So I guess like my question is, how do you, for lack of a better word, like fight the people that like are telling your, the person you're working with, like, don't listen to that. That's pussy shit, blah, 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 this and that, yeah. you know? And like, and you have to be like, oh no, this isn't your best interest. Like, I'm not trying yeah. to do anything like that. Right on. And actually, that's a great, that's a super important question. And I think um, there's been some, in the, historically in the last 20 years, some real cultural disconnects between what society and civilian therapists value and what military leaders have to value to get their job done. And a great example of this came from the Marine Corps where a, a young Marine failed his room inspection, which is a thing that happens. And it's, it's meant to... Um, stop problems before they get bigger and, and reinstall the correct work ethic. Um, in this instance, the guy, the, the Marine's like, he failed his room inspection. And he said, I want to kill myself. And that stops everything. And they should immediately go to behavioral health and complete a, a workup to make sure that they're really not going to kill themselves. That is important because we do not want to take a statement of suicide lightly, mm -hmm. right? We want to respond to that. Uh, with clinical appropriateness. Unfortunately, it was also a 12-miler that day. And so his line leadership and his teammates say, 
This guy is saying he wants to kill himself so he can get out of the 12 miler. Mm. And as long as that perception exists, this is how mental health fails to kind of be effectively engaged in a workplace scenario, right? All the Marines got to go hump a 12 miler. And this guy says he's getting out of it. That's the perception. And instead of, of taking this guy out of his environment and putting him into a clinical assessment, honestly, it's time to lace up the boots and go on a 12 miler and walk 50 paces, line of sight at the end of the line and do your clinical assessment with the dude doing the 12 miler. He can do the 12 miler. Nothing is so bad. And we need to teach that resilience and that ruggedness. The Marine has gone through worse. They've been through the crucible. They've proven that they're a Marine. And you can start figuring out what's going on. Oh, hey, girlfriend's pregnant. Yeah, that's really upsetting. Might not be mine. Yep, that's really upsetting. Might be mine. Yep, that's a thing. That wasn't the plan. It was a bad day. What was the appropriate response to it being a bad day? It was not, hey, Sarge, I want to kill myself. That's, that's what we have to fix. That's really what's going on in that case. Now, it may be that there are, there are absolutely some who are really can't take care of themselves. They're not safe, and they've got to be, it's time to go for a walk, and we're going we're gonna to make sure you're okay. But we don't have to take you from your workplace um, necessarily for everyone. We could, bring, we could bring mental health in their boots and, and go for a little walk and embed that. And I think that shows leadership of like, right, that secondary gain of saying that really doesn't exist, if you will. On the other hand, um, I just you know, got back from doing this JSOC consult, and I will say that there are absolutely some folks who see the benefit of paying attention to mental health while working. And so, you know, it's cultural shifts, it's ebbs and tides, right. but, um, you know, the most expensive, precious piece of equipment we have in our military is the service member. Um, they, we have poured the most money into, they're the hardest to replace. God's honest truth. And so we have to take good care of them. If we retread a tank, if we oil and clean out a, a rifle, we got to take care of our service members. Love it. Cool. I Thank love you. it. That's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise and yeah, sharing with us. I'm, yeah, that was really beautiful conversation. So thank you. Thank you for yes. having me. Yay. Yay. Well, I will take us out real quick. Um, the three of us, the three amigos on the pod here are accepting clients. Ro is the master of all things exercise and performance. And I know he loves when I tell him that. Nicole is our intuitive eating and health at every size dietitian who is now offering amazing programs with functional lab testing. And I am a performance dietitian specializing in healing the gut microbiome as the root of health. Make sure to follow us at Health Unfiltered Pod on Instagram and keep those awesome questions of the weeks coming. And just a reminder, you now can rate us directly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much any other platform where you get your podcasts. So <laughs> definitely send the mean reviews to Row, all the other ones. <laughs> Please post publicly. Be we awesome. love that. Um, but yeah, do you want to take us out, Row? Oh my God, I will. Cue that oh music. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, y'all. Bye.